We're in between series here, uh, just finishing up, uh, finish up a series on, on uh, love and judgment. I'll be starting a new one, I think, next week. But uh, we are approaching the anniversary of 9-11, and uh, I'm sure that's not information to any of you. You knew that. Uh, it's in the air, and people are thinking about this, so I thought it'd be appropriate to revisit uh, as, as sobering and as painful as, as it is. Uh, it needs to be reflected on. And so I, I want to this morning uh, ask some questions about 9-11, and it's a fairly hard-hitting message. So I'm going to warn you ahead of time. This last week, there was a documentary called Faith and Doubt after 9-11, after September 11. And I don't know if any of you saw that, but it was one of the most profound things I've ever seen on TV. It was just so uh, well done, and the people they had on there were so honest and uh, sometimes raw. I want to begin this message by watching uh, several segments from this documentary. And I'm telling you ahead of time, that uh, these people are, are just saying it straight from the heart. Our job is to let them say it. Uh, don't judge them. Don't uh, you know, be running a commentary in your mind about them. Just listen to the pain and, and, and uh, the, the confusion that is there. Uh, it is, in one case especially, a person's pretty straightforward and hard-hitting. It's nothing as bad as, as what you find in the Bible. Uh, the, you know, the Lord is not put off by hard questions. Amen. And you find some people making some pretty harsh statements about God in the Bible. And God apparently was so not put off that he put them in the Bible. Uh, so I, I want to invite us here to, to just listen to these testimonies that raise some very tough questions that I then want to deal with uh, when the video is done. We were calling this, Where Was God on September 11th? It was hell on earth. You couldn't dream it. This burning... Horror. My mother's in that. How could God be in the horror of what I saw? What kind of God is this? How can you believe in such a God? It's nothing to do with God. He's gone. This emptiness. I saw evil all in that building. This is what evil looks like. Being trapped in that building. Was there any God with them? There is no answer. There is only anger. A lot of anger. Religion drove those planes into those buildings. If people can kill for God in this way, this is the best reason never to believe in God. It looked like a giant syringe and sucked out this wonderful, amazing hope that we have in this country was sucked out at ground zero. They say the planes hit the building somewhere in 92nd to the 101st floor. It's terrible to think that 2,000 gallons of petrol burned through the building, totally scorching my daughter to death. Our son-in-law, Narul, worked on the 93rd floor. 
We were hoping that he might just have barely survived. I pray to Allah that if they survive, let them both survive. If they have to die, let them both go to Allah together. What was Allah's wish? My daughter and her husband both went to Allah together. And I cannot protest to Allah or ask why He took my daughter. It is all His will. No matter what I do, if I cry, if I scream, I can't bring her back. And so I have to accept that that is Allah's will. I got back to the hotel room, and I guess that's when I really felt the stark reality of everything. And I sat there by myself and watched the sunrise, and it was a startling beauty that I couldn't believe that this God that I'd talked to in my own way for 35 years could make the most beautiful place in the world and turn this loving man into bones and I couldn't reconcile the difference between those two extremes and I guess that's when I felt that my faith was so weakened by the 11th um, and so I felt like God was just not present in me the way it had been. I guess all I feel at this point is the profound absence of Dave and my conversations with God that I used to have. I don't have any more. I just can't bring myself to, to I used to talk quietly to myself or to God and say, thank you for Dave, thank you for Aiden, thank you for my life. God bless everyone, God bless the children, you know, please heal the sick, you know, the usual blessings. And now I can't bring myself to speak to him anymore because I feel so abandoned. I really can't see the purpose why all these people had to die. I can't accept this. Right now, God's not giving me that comfort. We're a community in mourning. We were hit pretty bad. I knew close to 30 people who died at the World Trade. Basically, they were firemen, young stockbrokers, sons of friends I knew. I miss him dearly. I don't know if I'm going to ever get over 
couple of I mean, uh, we were really tight, you know, we, we did a lot of things together. And I had to come down here to the beachfront to just let loose. And it was brutal. I let loose a guard. I fired all my barrels at him. Uh, it might sound crazy, but I cursed him. I damned him. I think God could have just ended this all. That's why I feel strongly that I'm losing respect for him. I know there's a trinity. I believe in the son, but the father, I'm having a rough time dealing with. I'm really having a rough time. I don't have any love for God the weeks that follow September 11th. It was really hatred. I can't accept this unless I can have an answer as to why it all occurred. I come down, basically when I come down here, and no question about it, I cry when I come down here. And I'll talk to my friends. I think my friends can hear me. God knows they're watching over all of us. I feel sometimes they're helping me uh, along with my life, trying to make me stronger. It was too barbaric. It was too barbaric the way the lies were taken. That wasn't mercy. So I look at him now as a barbarian. And I probably will. And uh, it's a sad situation. I think I'm a good Christian, but... I have a different view and image of him now. And I can't replace it with the old image. I can't replace it with the old image. I cling to a very noble image of God, a majestic God. Our anthems are basically hymns to this majestic God who blesses America with everything. But September 11th killed that God for me because there was no way to have a majestic God, a God who controlled everything. There was no way to have a God who understood reward and punishment, fair, unfair, who felt that America should be blessed above other nations because we were good people. There was a God on September 11th who didn't even mind that God's own name could be used as the final prayer of a suicide hijacker as he plowed into a building. We needed, and I know I needed, to have another God to turn to at that moment or there was going to be no God. How can you kneel in submission to a God who authors evil? Pain of where some of these people are at. And maybe it's because I, I, I have been there. I've been in this abyss where 
you lose uh, the familiarity with God's presence and you push God away. And the confusion in your mind and the questions that are unanswered and the anger that it produces. One of the worst places to ever be in your life is when you have a heart that wants to believe but a mind that won't let you. It is torment. I just uh, feel so much for uh, the man on the beach there, um, the lady who lost her husband. I was interviewed before that. All I feel, she says, is a profound absence of Dave and of the conversations I, I used to have with God. She misses God. I read somewhere recently that a person said that what God would do for them or who God was in, in the world, and uh, it just didn't come through. The first thing that needs to be said about all of this is that when a person is saying that God is barbaric or that God is monstrous or that God is evil or whatever, understand that they're talking from their emotion. And uh, our job is, is to let them vent. Uh, that's, that's a very necessary stage that a person has to go through. When you're in the nightmare, uh, that needs to happen. And that's not the time or the place to do what Job's friends did, and that is to jump in there and start trying to just package everything. But there is a point where when the dust settles and you're a little more removed from it and you're trying to make sense out of the world, to ask these questions and to try to answer these questions to help people get unstuck. And that's what I want to do here in the next 20 minutes or so, is what, what, what can be said to help people as they were there get unstuck, to give their minds permission to believe what their heart wants to believe. And this is my way, at least. Not everyone's going to agree with it, but my way of, of uh, getting myself unstuck, it's the only thing that I think, the only way I can make sense out of... Out of uh, this um, and other similar sorts of atrocities. One thing I'd say is this. Very frequently, people push the horrors of the world, the nightmares of the world, the pain of the world, they push it at bay, and they construct a theology that makes them feel good, which is why when, 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 the, when the nightmares of the world and the pain of the world comes into their backyard or even closer, that's when they, 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 they wonder how, how God could allow this or why God would ordain this. And see, the thing that's interesting is that things like the World Trade Center have been going on throughout history. This happens all the time. People have had their babies die. Uh, you know, divorces have occurred. People die of cancer. People, people die of starvation every day. And um, we, uh, the responsible, and I believe loving way to think through our theology is to not wait until we have to personally experience it before we ask the question, but rather to live life with an empathetic heart to everybody who is suffering. And so that it is as though your spouse was lost in the World Trade Center or your daughter was lost in the World Trade Center. Because this, this is reality. Reality really does bite. And, and if we have a kind of, kind of Pollyanna view of God that's constructed just out of our own little oasis that we can create, keeping all that at bay because we don't want to look at it, well, then, then of course, your theology is not going to line up with reality when reality stops being nice. The, rea- the fact of the matter is that September 11th is powerful because it symbolizes, in part, what's prevalent, so, so prevalent throughout the whole earth all the time. 
So let's think hard about these kind of issues. I'm going to give some, several reflections here. And I'm going to weave them around three fundamental questions um, that, uh, that I think need to be asked. The first question I want to ask is this. Why ask the question, why God? Why do we feel the need to ask the question, why God? You found that behind the anger and behind the rage of, of, of uh, the people in this video, there was the unanswerability of that question, why God? Why did God allow this, or why did God ordain this? What reason could God possibly have? What purpose could God possibly have? What design could God possibly have for uh, uh, this World Trade Center attack? And because they can't answer that question, they rage. But the question I want to ask is more fundamental than that. Why ask the why question? You see, the why question itself presupposes that God has a reason for the World Trade Center attack and that God has a reason for every particular aspect of the World Trade Center attack. Why would God have my daughter die rather than somebody else, you know? Well, that, that, that supposes that God is, it, 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 it conjures up a picture of God who is behind the scenes steering everything. I want your daughter to, I know it's part of his plan that your daughter is in the building when it collapses, but that other person's daughter gets out. And God's up there steering the, the plane to hit uh, the World Trade Center at just the right angle, at just the right time, incinerating just the right number of people. Uh, God's timing is the best timing. It happened at 858, not 857 or 859. So the one person who was going to leave the building but didn't get out within that last minute to make sure the building collapsed on them. The why question presupposes that, that God is behind every horrifying thing that happens in this world. Every, every scream of every child, every, every kidnapped, ever mutilated, ever raped, it's, it's all part of a secret divine plan. It's up there stirring the whole thing. And the question I'm asking is this. Why think that? Why God did you? Well, why think that He did? I want to submit to you that it's the wrong question. It is a question that Jesus never asked. In fact, it's a question that Jesus sometimes explicitly refuted. You read Luke chapter 13, for example. Some people were saying, why God? Why did God have uh, this tower fall on these 18 people? Well, maybe he was punishing them. And Jesus says, no. Why would he punish them and not you? You're just as evil as they are. Just worry about your own relationship with God. Well, there's these other people who got massacred by Pilate. He deals with in, in, in Luke 13. These people got massacred by Pilate. Oh, God was punishing them. No, and the Pilate's the one who massacred them, not God. Uh, and, and you think that, that they deserve more punishment than you. No, no, just worry about your relationship with God. Repent or you're all going to perish. They came upon a blind man in, in John chapter 9. The disciples are saying, you know, said, who sinned that this man was born blind? Who, you know, who's, who's God punishing here? Uh, was it him or was it his parents? And in the original Greek, Jesus says neither, but let God be glorified. In other words, the only thing to worry about here is not asking, you know, why did this happen? What secret purpose does God have? That's the wrong set of questions. The only thing that needs to be done is to ask the question, what can we do about it? Throughout Jesus' ministry, and I don't think this is usually appreciated enough, he never suggests that God has a particular specific reason for the suffering that people are going through. Never. He never encourages people. This is what you hear all the time in, uh, in, in uh, uh, religious circles. You read about it in the book of Job. This is what Job's friends did. 
Uh, people always saying, well, you've got to accept this as coming from God. He's got a purpose for everything. A providence right straight with crooked lines. Judge not the Lord by feeble reason, but trust him in his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. And, and there's always cliches that, that we uh, you know, come at people with, but Jesus never does that. In fact, what you find in the, in the ministry of Jesus is he reveals the will of God by bringing relief to the suffering situation that people are in, bringing healing and bringing deliverance to the situation that people are in. God's will isn't revealed in their dilemma and their bondage or in the nightmares that they're in. God's will is revealed in Jesus confronting the bondage and the nightmare in order to change it. He never asks the why question, never supposes, never tells anyone to just accept it, to just sort of roll with it. Why ask the why question? In fact, Jesus and the gospel authors, and you find this throughout the epistles as well, they frequently specify that the will behind the nightmare is not God, it's rather Satan or demons, fallen angels, that are working at cross purposes with God. Here's something that's, that's fundamental to understand. The Bible assumes that while God can use the, the, the free wills of even evil people to his own ends, it, it assumes that free agents have their own free will and can make decisions that are contrary to God's will. It's a fundamental point that, that, that changes the whole contour of the question why. Let me give you a couple of examples of this. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, the Lord says, I set before you life and death. I set before you uh, blessings and curses. Choose now life so that you and your children may live. God, because he created a, 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 uh, a world where the goal is love and love can't be programmed or co- coerced, he gives us and he gives spirit beings free will. And he sets before us options. That's what free will means. But God's will is that we'll choose the right one. God's will is that we'll choose life. God's will is that we'll choose him. But the very fact that you have the choice to do that means you have the choice not to do that. And when you don't choose that, that's not about God. That's about you. It says in Luke chapter 7, By refusing to be baptized by John the Baptist, the Pharisees and the lawyers, look at this, rejected God's purpose for themselves. They rejected God's purpose for themselves. God had a purpose. God had a plan for their life. But God's plan for your life isn't an inevitability. It's something God hopes for, but you have the power to reject it or accept it. And when you reject it, that's not God's purpose. God's purpose is what you rejected. People have the capacity, and even angels had had the capacity, to reject God's purpose for their life. God wants them to choose life, but they choose death. It says in 1 Kings chapter 11, Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, why was it evil? Because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel. You find passages like this all over the place in the Bible. Solomon had a heart, a center of his being. And uh, um, uh, what he did was evil in the Lord's sight, precisely because it wasn't what God wanted him to do with his heart. His heart turned from the Lord, not in accordance with the Lord's design, but against the Lord's design, and that's why it was called evil. The Lord says to the children of Israel, how long shall your, look at, look at this, how long shall your, they're not mine, they're your evil schemes lodge within you. They don't lodge within me. I don't have a secret plan for your evil. I'm not causing your evil. That's about you. How long shall your evil plans lodge within you? And so far as God from willing this, it's what he doesn't will. And he's asking the question, how long are you going to put up, continue in this stubborn mindset? 
Evil intentions lodge within free agents. They don't lodge within God. The Lord says this in Isaiah chapter 30. Listen to this. It's just so, O rebellious children, says the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine. You know, you've got a plan, all right. It's not mine. It's your plan. Who make an alliance, but against my will, adding sin to sin. It's so crucial that we understand that God, because his goal was love, gave free will to agents. And when agents carry out plans that are against God's will, that's not God's plan. It's evil because it's against God's plan. And it makes sense perhaps to ask, why did the agent do that? But it doesn't make sense to say, why did God do that? If I decide to pick up this podium right now and throw it at the front row of people, and uh, the result is that one breaks uh, their neck and another person is permanently brain damaged. You can ask, well, why did Greg do that? Ask that question, why did Greg do that? And find out what my plan was, what my evil intentions were. Maybe you'll learn something about my background or who knows, maybe I just snapped. But ask, why did Greg do that? But don't ask, why did God do that? Because God didn't do that. Greg did that. You can ask the question, well, why, why did God create Greg with the capacity to do that? And the answer would be, because if I didn't have the capacity to harm, I couldn't have the capacity to bless. It's a choice. I've got life and death in front of me. I've got love and hatred in front of me, and I can choose one or the other. And when I choose, you can ask me why I chose that. But don't ask God why I chose that. He's not the one who chose it for me. You see, the plan to attack the World Trade Center was a plan that was lodged within Osama bin Laden's head, but it wasn't lodged in God's heart. It was lodged in the Al-Qaeda and it was lodged in terrorists. And I don't doubt that it was maybe lodged in some demons and in Satan himself that was masterminding the whole thing and influencing uh, other agents to go along with this program. But it was not God's plan. And the tragedy is this. If we confuse those things, God's plan from, from Satan's plans or God's plans from our own plans or the plans of terrorists, if we confuse that, then we mesh it all together and you end up with something like what these people are rebelling against. You say that God's all good, God's all loving, God's all true, but then how is it that you have these evil intentions, these barbaric things, these nightmarish things, these horrifying things happening in the name of God that supposedly God's uh, you know, uh, orchestrating, steering the planes into the building at just the right time, killing just the right people, and you say He's all loving and He's all good. So crucial that we keep these things separate. And when people fuse these things together... Then the character of God gets wrapped up with all the character of the free agents that, that he has created. And people most tragically end up pushing God away when they need him the most. That's the saddest thing about this is that right when people need God the most, they need his love, they need his comfort, they need his wisdom. They're so filled with rage because of this picture they had of God. Stirring, stirring things behind the scenes, thinking that everything that happens in the world is part of his secret plan. He's got a plan for what he wants to do with the evil once it occurs, but he doesn't have a plan for the evil. You see the difference there? That's about, that's about Osama bin Laden. Which leads to my second question, and it's this. What is your picture of God? What is your picture of God? Each of these people that are raging against God, what they're raging against is a conception of God that they have in their mind of steering the planes into the building, of, of making, you know, making sure that just the right people were burned right away. Others had to jump out of the building uh, to their death. Others just got crushed when it collapsed. And he's somehow orchestrating all that, and they're, they're saying, No, I can't. That, that's impossible. And I think they're right. But see, that's who they think God is, and so they're rejecting God in the middle of that. What is your picture of God? 
Now, some people think, like one of the people in this video, that God is only majestic if He's, if he's controlling everything. Uh, God's only glorious. He's only exalted. He's only sovereign if He's the one who somehow, you know, steers the planes into the building at just the right time and just the right angle, killing just the right people. And that's, that, that's the majestic view of God. That one guy on, on the video said, you know, I, I used to hold to a noble view of God, a majestic view of God who's going to bless America, you know. We like the patriotic God who's, who's on our side, you know, and, and, and is controlling everything. And the question I want to ask is what is noble or majestic about that conception of God? It seems to me like it's the worship of sheer power. Somehow greatness is, is equated with, with control. So if you say that God doesn't control everything, then he must not be absolutely great. What I want to know is what is, what is majestic or noble about that? We don't ordinarily, do we, uh, honor the fact that someone can control something. Look, I can control the wiggling of my fingers, but you don't admire me for that fact. I have an innate power to control my fingers. Yeah, okay, it's your power, so it's your fingers, so of course you can do that. But there's nothing admirable. It doesn't take any character to control something you have the power to control. And God could wiggle the creation just like he wants to. If he wanted to make us all just automatons, he could just wiggle the creation, you know, however he wants, steer planes in the buildings however he wants. He could do that. But what would be praiseworthy or noble or majestic or exalted about that? But if a person... If a person is able to win the allegiance of others because of their wisdom and because of their character and because of their love, that we admire. In fact, when a person, when a person feels the need to control others, we usually understand if you're emotionally healthy, it's because they lack confidence in their ability to do it in a good way. They, 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 they don't trust their wisdom or their character or their love, their power to influence, and that's why they've got to control. Ordinarily, control is seen as a sign of weakness, not strength. And the willingness to give away power, trusting your capacity to leave with, with, with wisdom and love, that is seen as being a strength. I'm asking the question, why think that things are different with God? It seems to me it takes a more noble and a more majestic and a more sovereign and a more exalted God to have the self-confidence to create beings who are genuinely personal and have their own freedom and have their own say-so, and now to try to win them over with your wisdom and win them over with your love rather than just to control them. Someone asked C.S. Lewis one time, well, if you believe in free will, then that means that you think the omnipotent God can be defeated. And it seems like, by definition, omnipotence can't be defeated. And so C.S. Lewis responded this way. He says, what you call defeat, I call a miracle. The greatest act of omnipotence is that it creates creatures who can say no to it. God is so omnipotent, he doesn't need to exercise exhaustive unilateral power. He dares to create beings. He dares to risk creating beings who have the capacity to say no to him. God is so great, he can do that. If you think that God can do that, then you're thereby denying that he's omnipotent. And I submit to you that God is so noble, so majestic, so beautiful, so grand, so sovereign, that he creates a world that has the capacity to love. He could have created a different kind of world, but it would have been devoid of love. So he takes the risk, he dares to take the risk of creating beings, creating a world where he doesn't necessarily always get his own way. Where beings, agents, human beings and angels have plans, and their job is to align their plans with his plans, but because love is the goal, they don't have to do it that way, and they can develop plans and schemes and motivations that work against God's plans, motivations, and, and, and schemes. And I submit to you that that is a noble, majestic, honorable, praiseworthy view of God. But God's majesty and God's nobility and God's greatness 
is even more clearly displayed, not just in the fact that he creates beings for the purpose of sharing in love, but that he himself displays outrageous love even when these beings turn away from him. And now we're getting at the true biblical definition of majesty and greatness. The majesty of God is found in the fact that in Jesus Christ, God, in a sense, takes on responsibility for the whole world. He's the creator, and he's not guilty of what any agent does of their own free will, but he takes responsibility for it. He himself, it says in Isaiah 53, takes upon himself all the pain, all the sin, all the punishment of the world. It's God taking responsibility for the entire world, and in the very act of doing that, he shows what kind of God he really is. He demonstrates unfathomable, incomprehensible, unwavering, passionate love on, on, on the cross of Jesus Christ. And that is what God is like. What is your picture of God? If you're thinking biblically, we shouldn't look to Hollywood and, and look to uh, worldly forms of exercising power to develop a definition of what God is like, of what his sovereignty is like. According to the New Testament, the place to look, the singular place to look, to get a picture of God is the person of Jesus Christ. It says in John chapter 14, Jesus said to Philip, Philip said, show us the Father. We need a new God. We need a new God. Will you show us the Father? Give us a picture of the Father. And then we'll be satisfied. And Jesus said, have I been so long with you, and yet you don't know me? If you see me, you see the Father. Here I am. You want a picture of God? You want to know what God looks like? Watch me closely. If you see me, you see the Father. And the place where we've got to develop our understanding of who God is is in the person of Jesus Christ, especially centered on the central act that Jesus did for us, and that is dying on the cross of Calvary. You want to know what God's power is like? Look at Calvary. And what you'll get from that is not an Arnold Schwarzenegger kind of picture of domination. What you get is an understanding of power that operates by love. God wins us by His love. He can make us robots. He can put programs in our head. He can force us to say whatever He wants to, wants to, but He'd rather have it come from us on our own. So He wins us over by the demonstration of a love that is beautiful, that is unfathomable, that is incomprehensible. That is what God is like. You want to know what God's glory is? Look to the cross. You want to know what God's greatness is? Look to the cross. You want to know what God's wisdom is like? Look to the cross. Jesus defines from the beginning to the end what God is like for us. That's why the Bible says that He's the Word of God. He's the expression of God. He's the form of God. He's the image of God. The fullness of the Godhead was revealed in Him. All that makes God God is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. That should be our picture of God. And that's not a step away from majesty, a step away from power, a step away from nobility. That's the quintessential nature of nobility. Amen? That's the essence of what greatness, of what majesty, of what glory is. It's found in the person of Jesus Christ. The tragic thing is that People, people, amen, people, they, de- they, they develop a picture of God based on the circumstances of their life. And there is no sure way of being deceived than to do that. We borrow a concept of power from the world. Since we aspire sort toward, towards a certain kind of power, we project it onto God. Uh, we, we, we borrow from uh, experiences in our life. The World Trade Center happens and we use that. We, we allow that to define what God is like. So God must be barbaric. We, we look at the abuse that we had in childhood. We look at the fact that our, our mother or our wife died of leukemia. We look at the fact that our father abandoned us. We look at the fact that we have got a loved one who's going away from us right now. We look at all the horrors of the world and we let that influence our picture of God. So God becomes less beautiful than He really is. 
And what the Bible would tell us to do is to stay focused on Jesus Christ. Hebrews 12, 2. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. When the buildings are collapsing around you, fix your eyes upon Jesus. That's the God with whom you have to do. When the nightmares of life are coming, fix your eyes upon Jesus. When your child is struggling, fix your eyes upon Jesus. When your health is failing, fix your eyes upon Jesus. When the finances are crumbling, fix your eyes upon Jesus. When your spouse is walking away from you, fix your eyes upon Jesus. When the world is going to war, fix your eyes upon Jesus. When the earth is crumbling and there's, there's mudslides going on and there are children being kidnapped, fix your eyes upon Jesus. That is what God is like. That's the true God with whom you have to do. That's your picture of God. The pattern of this world, this war zone, this sick and sometimes disgusting war zone that we're a part of, what you get if you infer God from that is a lot of demonic influence. The pattern of this world, the Bible says, is under a strong demonic influence. Fix your eyes upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. That's a, that's a picture of God you'll never feel the need to rage at or push away from. So where was God in the World Trade Center? If, if the cross is your definition of God, you get a clue as to where God was. God's not up there looking down at these poor, pathetic human beings saying, oh, look what they're going through. Let alone steering the airplanes to make sure that they come right at the right time and the right angle, hitting the right buildings, killing the right people. That's not, that's not the picture you get when you look at Jesus Christ. God is a God, if it means anything, that God, the Almighty God, the Creator who sustains everything, every molecule, every moment, that this God would become a human being and die a hellish God forsaking death on the cross for rebel human beings like you and me. If that means anything, it means this. God's greatness is found not in his detachment from the pain, but in his willingness to dive into the pain. He submerges himself. This is a God who dives into suffering. This is a God who dives into pain. This is a God who is willing to cry. You find that in the Bible. And if you think that means that God is weak, you really need to kingdomize your thinking about, about, about things because that's a sign of God's strength, not a sign of his weakness. This is a God who's on the inside of the terror. He knows what it is from the inside to be in a nightmare. He absorbed every ounce of that on the cross of Calvary. Which leads to my third, my third question, and that is this. What is your hope? What is your hope? God's not only on the inside of the suffering, experiencing it, He's on the inside of the suffering, redeeming it. The hope, and when the Bible talks about hope, it means confident expectation. It's not like an improbable wish. It's a confident expectation and anticipation. The confident anticipation that you can have is, as you look to the cross to define who God is for you, not to Arnold Schwarzenegger, but to the cross. The confident anticipation is not that things are going to go wonderful for you. It's not that, that things are going to all work out. I can't guarantee you here this morning that you won't someday have a building collapse on, on, on you. How can I assure you of that? We want so badly to have that assurance that we, can, we construct a God who will give it to us. And we have to ignore the fact that buildings collapse on people all the time to do it, but if you're going to be into self-denial, that's what you do. And then when the building does collapse, you wonder, why God? You blame God for it. The reality is, is that in this war zone epic that we are a part of right now, where there is, really is spiritual warfare going on all the time in all places, I can't give you that assurance. I can't tell you you're never going to die of cancer. I can't tell you you're not going to be sick. I can't tell you everything's going to work out fine in your marriage. I can't, I can't give you any of those assurances. And see, when we try to hang on to those kind of assurances, because we want so badly to have a nice life, we end up indicting the people who don't have a nice life. 
If you've got the assurance that everything's going to work out well for you, well then, I guess those people for whom things didn't work out very well when the World Trade Center collapsed, what, they probably weren't right with God. They must have had sin in their life. They, they, they probably didn't pray that morning. They, and we come up with some excuse, and now we are right there with Job's friends, indicting him for the suffering he's going through, which is the one thing the Bible says never to do. I can't give you that assurance. What I can do, the hope is this. The confident anticipation actually is far better than that. The confident anticipation is twofold. Number one, this epic is temporary, praise God. This war zone is temporary, praise God. That, that, that the evil and the terrorism and the suffering does not have the last word. If I didn't believe that, I don't know what I'd do. Uh, there's, a, there's a probationary epic, epic that we're a part of that will decide the choices we make. Life or death determines what kingdom we are born into, whether we'll reign with God forever and ever or not. But you've got to know this, that in the end, the Bible says God will be all in all. All of his foes will be destroyed. His love shall reign supreme. His glory shall reign supreme. And all who say yes to them in the core of their being will reign supreme, praise God. And I find that I need to, to get by in this life, remind myself very vividly of that hope. I picture the guy on the beach there someday meeting Jesus Christ. And I don't think Jesus... I, I, the, the fact that he, he is in that much pain shows that there's still a connection between him and God. He still cares. And I just want to see when Jesus embraces him and says, I, you know, you were really in a lot of pain at that time and a lot of confusion at that time, and I understand and I forgive you, but now you've got to see the true me and let my beauty just bring a healing to all the wounds that were caused in the war zone. I, I, I chew on stuff like that. When that lady will finally uh, be able to talk to Jesus Christ face to face, amen, and, and will receive the love that, uh, that God would like her to receive now, whether she's going to let that happen or not. Uh, run... Fast forward the movie of world history and enter into that hope that, that dwarfs in significance all of their hopes when he'll wipe away every tear from our eye and there'll be no more kidnapped kids or buildings crumbling because some terrorists drove themselves into it. In the end, God wins and Satan loses, praise God. And that's the best news in the world. That's the best news in the world. And the final, the final piece and very important piece of confident expectation you can have is this. It's not just in the end that you can have that assurance. Even now, the Bible says, the whole creation groans. The whole creation groans. There's a lot of groaning going on. And, and, and uh, we need to be real with that. But if you are willing, if you work with God, it says in Romans 8.28, that, that, that all things, God is working in all things to the advantage of those who are called by God according to His purpose. In other words, when you have yielded to God and you're looking for His purpose in all things, it doesn't mean He causes it, but He immediately adopts it and says, okay, how can I use this? And He's able because He's so smart. He wins us over by His wisdom to turn it to our advantage. Whatever valley you're in, whatever nightmare you're in, whatever pain you're in, you serve a God who's infinitely intelligent. From all eternity, He has seen every possible thing we'd ever do and anticipated it, so He's not caught off guard. And when it happens, He grieves over that, cries over that. But He also asks the question, He's not just with you, but He asks the question, what can I do through you? How can we use this to your advantage? And he's so smart, sometimes you look back on it and you're actually thankful that you went through it because of what he brought out of it. July was a bad month for me. 
That was a bad month for the church. We went through a war zone period. I think we're better for it. I know I'm better for it. A piece of me, a piece of flesh of me died. And I don't mean my lip. But, but a flesh part of me uh, further died. And the Lord used it to just uh, to change my relationship, just shifted it up a gear. He turns it to your advantage. I spoke with a person several months ago, a man who's going through a terrible, terrible uh, time in his marriage. He doesn't know if it's going to last. I, I don't even know if it did work out or not. But what he found was that God used the pain, the excruciating pain of this nightmarish marriage to work on stuff in his life. And uh, to shift him up to another, the more trouble you're in, the bigger your God needs to be to get you through it. And, and so God reveals an, a, another dimension of his bigness. And it doesn't mean that you stop caring about what's going on down here, but it becomes smaller and more manageable the bigger God gets. However he does it, he's able to work in all things to bring hope in the middle of the situation. So it's not only not just a sheer loss, it's not even just a break-even thing. He somehow manages to have you come out ahead in the situation. So I want to end with this question. Are you in a valley? Maybe it's not a World, a world Trade Center proportions, but a valley, a, a place of pain, a place of darkness, a place of anguish, maybe a place of total confusion. What I want you to know is this. God understands the confusion. And even now, He wants you to know that He is with you and wants to work with you to bring something of redemptive value out of this. Close your eyes. Whatever, close your eyes and just pray. I want to ask this question just so I can say a quick prayer up here for any who are in this situation. And as I'm doing this, with the prayer team come forward? But if you're here this morning and you're in that valley, you're in that dark place, and maybe you can't even begin to fathom what possible good can come out of the situation that you're in. Would you just raise your hand? Raise your hand if you're in that place. I'm not going to call you forward. I just want to pray for you from up here. Raise your hand. Anybody else? You're in that place uh, of confusion, of pain, maybe despair. All right. All around the room, there are people in this place. Let me pray for you. Father, we together, as the body of Christ, join in. And, and, and stand in the gap on behalf of these people, Lord, who are in this place. Father, maybe it's a marriage, maybe it's a kid, maybe it's finances, maybe it's health. Maybe someone just found out that they've that it's spread to the lymph nodes. Father, it, it, it's, a, it's a fearful place sometimes, a lonely place sometimes. I pray, Lord, we together pray, Lord, that they would know that you are with them. You're on the inside of it. You're not looking down detached. You're on the inside of it, Lord God. Help them to know that they're not alone. Help them to feel you, as we sang earlier. Put your arms around them. Hold them close. Never let them go and let them know that. And then, Lord, I pray that you would begin to reveal to them, as they yield to you, reveal to them how this is not going to just be sheer loss. Lord, reveal to them your wisdom on using this stuff as fertilizer in our life. What do you want to grow? What do you want to accomplish here, Lord? and lead them and guide them by your steadfast, loving hand. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to give two invitations and then send you off. Number one, if you were one of those who raised your hand, or if uh, maybe you didn't, but if you'd like prayer up here to, uh, to just have more of God's presence walking through the valley that you're in, I want to encourage you to come forward and spend some time in prayer. If you have children in the children's church, Please just quickly go out, get your kids, and then come back here. These folks will wait for you, and we don't mind kids running around during the prayer time. If you're here this morning and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, and maybe now for the first time you see the beauty of God, maybe maybe the, the, the picture of God that you had that you couldn't believe in has been collapsed, and now you get a new picture of God, I want to invite you to come forward, and over in this corner here, there's a man, Chuck, will, will uh, answer any questions you might have and lead you in a prayer to begin that relationship. 
and I encourage you to do that. Go forth in the love and the power and the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We love you.